Hey y'all, welcome to Feasting on Truth. I'm Erin Warren. Today we move into chapter two of the Gospel of John and two stories you've probably heard before, but I loved studying them in context in John this week. I just love the juxtaposition of these two stories. One is a story of filling and one is a story of emptying. One is quiet and private. One is about as public as you can get, but both reveal Jesus's power and authority and the result is that many believe. John orders his gospel purposely to lead us to a decision about who Jesus is. And we will see that here in these passages this week. So here we go. Hey y'all, welcome to week three of our study of the Gospel of John. Um, Tonight we are diving into John chapter two. Um, These are two very familiar passages. And so um, my hope and my prayer is that we can um, not be stuck in the familiarity. That's a really hard word to say. Um, In what is familiar, but that we can really... um, For some of y'all, this may have been the first time that you've studied this passage in this way. Um, For some of y'all, it may be something that is, um, you've studied multiple times in an inductive format. And so um, whatever, wherever you are, I just want you to know that it's my heart and my prayer that tonight um, and uh, through your group time that you are able to, um, I don't want to say have new insight, but that um, really solidify the foundation of what this passage means and how we um, respond um, to it. So let me open us up in prayer and we will get started. Father God, I just thank you for these women who are here. God, I thank you for your word. God, I thank you that um, this is not just a one and done check um, kind of book, Lord, but that we can return and um, return and return and return, Lord, to um, passages we've read over and over, but that, um, God, you um, meet us in new ways, Lord, because we're in new places and because we're in new circumstances, Lord, that you can still speak to us um, through your word and um, that you can give us deeper insight into what it is that you have for us. Lord, I just pray first and foremost that we would see you. God, that um, my words would be your words, um, that you would speak. Um, You have run of my mouth, Lord Jesus, and I just pray that you would use it to um, bring you glory, to speak truth, and to um, point to you. Um, Lord, I just pray that um, we would be teachable tonight. We are here. Lord, we invite you to show up, and it's in your name I pray. Amen. Um, All right, so um, here we go. John chapter two, verse one. On the third day, there was a wedding at Cana in Galilee and the mother of Jesus was there. Jesus was also invited to the wedding with his disciples. And when the wine ran out, the mother of Jesus said to them, they have no wine. Um, So we see a couple of things here. It says on the third day. So this implies that it happens three days after the last events. Um, that we read in chapter one. So it's kind of a continuation. Um, And um, it takes place in Cana. So if you have your book in your map on page 18, you can see where Cana is. Um, Jesus and his disciples are up in the Galilee region. And if you remember, he um, had gone to Bethsaida and to, hold on, I'm going to pull it up so I don't misspeak here. Um, 
so he's in the Galilee region and he's called his disciples. And so we, um, they are invited to this wedding. Now weddings, I'm going to spend a lot of time tonight kind of giving some of the additional background and cultural context of what is going on in this passage. Um, if you'll remember in the intro to our study, I talked a lot about how John really has this insider view um, of what was going on, um, not only in the events of Jesus's life, but as a, um, as a Jewish person himself, he um, was very familiar with all of this. And so um, sometimes I think we can gloss over those things, but when we really understand, it really does help us give um, better meaning and understanding to what's going on when we understand the culture in which they're going through. So weddings were big deals. They could last up to seven days. And um, the more people you invited, the more honor it brought to your family. Um, but running out of wine was not a good thing. Um, it would have brought shame on them. Um, and dishonor. They had a very heavy emphasis on hospitality. Um, and so running out of wine would have been incredibly inhospitable. Um, and so they have run out of wine. Um, and it also was very possible that the women probably would have found out before the men. Um, and so Mary turns to Jesus and says, they have no wine. And Jesus in verse four responds and says, uh, Jesus said to her, woman, what does this have to do with me? My hour has not yet come. And his mother said to the servants, do whatever he tells you. Um, this is an instance where we have to be very careful um, because in English, that sounds really disrespectful for him to talk to his mom that way um, or to anyone. And so um, it's really important. I don't know if y'all's Bibles, but I, multiple Bibles that I read this in had a footnote that said, this is not a disrespectful um, term that he used. Um, it was similar to ma'am or my lady. It was, um, it was not disrespectful, but it was um, considered in respectful in their language, in their um, culture and in their language. The word that's used in, in the Aramaic would have been a term of respect. Um, and I love, um, I love Mary's response here. Jesus has not begun his public ministry. Um, and he's in the privacy of this wedding in Cana, which was a very small town. Um, uh, John is the only author, uh, gospel author, who mentions this town. And so um, she just says to the servants, she doesn't even say to Jesus. She looks at the servants and says, do whatever he tells you to. And I just love her faith. Like she knew um, who he was and what he was capable of. Um, Verse six. Now there were six stone water jars for the Jewish rites of purification, each holding 20 to 30 gallons. Um, so a couple of notes about these jars. Um, there were six of them. They, if they hold 20 to 30 gallons, they were pretty sizable. Um, and I love that John includes the detail that they were stone. So um, a clay pot would have been considered porous which meant that um, the water or the, um, the purification, which I'm going to talk about in just a second, um, it would have been unclean. Um, and so uh, the stone jar, which probably was limestone um, carved out of one piece of stone. So this was not something that was formed like clay or molded. Um, it would have been carved out of a piece of stone. Um, 
could be purified. And so that's why it was usually the vessel of choice when they were talking about the um, Jewish rites of purification. So um, if you were here for the tabernacle study, um, or if you've done any kind of study in the Old Testament, or um, particularly if you spent a lot of time in Leviticus, you may know that the um, they had, the Jewish people had um, these rites of purification. Purification was a huge part of their religion. It was a huge part of what they did. Um, and a lot of this um, is, so if they touched a, um, a dead animal, they were considered unclean and they had to go through a special um, cleansing process. Um, I kind of alluded to it last week when we were talking about baptism, about how this idea of cleansing away with water um, was, was not foreign to them. So when um, Jesus was baptized, um, so it wasn't like this idea that they didn't quite like understand. They were very, very familiar with this idea of using water to wash away impurities. And so one of the times that um, it was very important that they would purify themselves is before they eat. And we see this in Mark 7. Um, I'm just going to read a couple of the verses, um, verses 1 through 4. Um, it says, now when the Pharisees gathered to him with some of the scribes who had come from Jerusalem, they saw that some of the disciples ate with hands that were defiled, that is, unwashed. For Pharisees and all the Jews do not eat unless they wash their hands properly, holding to the tradition of the elders. And when they come in from the marketplace, they do not eat unless they wash. And there are many other traditions that they observe, such as washing of cups and pots and copper vessels and dining couches. So um, all of these things had to be cleaned. And so these jars held the water that would be used for the purification before a meal. Um, and so that's kind of like a little bit about these pitchers, just so you can kind of, and in total, we're talking about 120 to 180 gallons of of water that could be held in these jars. So it was a significant amount. Um, verse seven, Jesus said to the servants, fill the jars with water and they filled them up to the brim. And he said to them, now draw some out, take it to the master of the feast. So they took it. Um, I want to tell you real quick about the master of the feast. And then I'll tell you what really struck me in these two verses um, or one verse. Um, no, it was two verses. Um, so the master of the feast was um, the one who oversaw the feast. He oversaw the entertainment. He oversaw the setup, where all the tables went, um, it, the arrangement of the courses of food. He was also responsible for the tasting of food and wine. And so when he takes this, um, when they say take the wine to the master, nothing could be served unless it went through the master of the feast. Um, so here's what I noticed. I noticed the completeness of their obedience. The Greek word that is used where Jesus says, fill the jars, it means to fill entirely. And then I love that John adds this note, they filled it up to the brim, that they didn't leave any space. There was, there was no disobedience. It was, they said, they filled it all the way up, like to the point where they could add no more water. And then he said, take it to the master of the feast and they took it. Now, I kind of have this thought that takes a lot of guts and a lot of trust because 
um, when they take it to the master of the feast, you know, we don't know at what point did it turn into wine as soon as they filled it? Did it turn on the way there? Did it turn as they were pouring it into cups or as he was drinking it? Um, but to take something, water, to the master of the feast as a, a offering of wine or as, a, as the wine, that takes a lot of trust. And so these servants, to be able to put their trust in, in what, in Jesus's words, I think, and their complete obedience really struck me. Verse nine, when the master of the feast tasted the water now become wine and did not know where it came from, though the servants who had drawn the water knew, the master of the feast called the bridegroom and said to him, everyone serves the good wine first. And then when the people have drunk freely, then the poor wine but you have kept the good wine until now. This is the first signs Jesus did at Cana in Galilee and manifested his glory and his disciples believed in him. So um, we see um, this kind of exchange. So um, a couple of observations here. One is I feel like typically when we read this passage, we probably tend to focus a little bit too much on the wine. Um, this is not an argument that drinking is okay or not okay. It's not an argument that the good stuff is okay. I feel like that's a really self-centered way for us to come to scripture because we're looking for what is good for us. And instead um, we need to be asking the questions, what does this say about God? And what does this truly say? And I don't want us to get hung up on the wrong um, parts of this miracle. Um, because I, what I have seen, what I see in this miracle is an instance where we see Jesus um, put people over ritual. And um, we see that throughout scripture and he's kind of, he's coming in and part of his ministry, part of his ministry is to say the old way is gone and a new way is coming. And um, I am putting importance on the people um, on this family who is about to face shame for running out of wine um, on uh, the feast and the party. And he's, then he is on the ritual of what these jars were intended to be used for. And I'll get to that in just a second. So we see, um, so we see Jesus putting people over ritual. Um, and then we see um, John call out, this is the first sign. Now, remember I said that there are seven signs um, that Jesus gives. There's maybe one or two more, depending on who you read. Um, essentially there are seven miracles that he kind of does throughout this book. Um, and this is the first sign. Um, the Greek word for sign means a sign, typically miraculous, given especially to confirm, corroborate, or authenticate. So to confirm, corroborate, or authenticate. Um, and so it's really a sign is an act of authority. And so, um, and we see that throughout the Bible. Um, and one of the biggest ones we can probably go to is Moses. Um, when Moses had been called to go to Pharaoh and tell him to let his people go, he did signs that led to 10 plagues um, that um, established his authority as a prophet of God. And so we see Jesus 
um, displaying power over something that is natural, um, a divine power over something, and it's the sign of who he is. Um, and I think it's really interesting. Now, this is an area where we could probably go really deep in, but I'm just going to tell y'all, and if you want to go deeper on it this week, there's some really cool stuff out there. Um, how Moses's first sign was that he turned the water of the Nile River into blood and how Jesus's first sign was that he turned water into wine. So um, there's a neat contrast there of this old way, the old law, which is um, that is now insufficient and how Jesus turns it to wine. I digress. Okay. So, but here's what I want us to really, really focus on here. Okay. Is that storing wine in is not what these jars were intended for. They were intended for the purification. And we don't know. I don't, it doesn't explicitly say the jars were empty um, and purified and just sitting there waiting. So, we don't know if there was some water in them and they had to fill it up to the brim. We don't know if it, they were empty and waiting. But what I think is um, that we focus on is that the intended purpose for these jars was for the Jewish rite of purification. And Jesus took something and, and said, I'm, it is not in, it may be intended for this, but I'm going to use it to make new wine. And um, I think what an incredible picture of what Jesus does in our own lives, how he um, takes something and he cleanses it and with his blood and he creates a new creation out of it, I think is such a beautiful picture. Um, and then I love, like I said, the completeness of the obedience um, because the result of the completeness of their obedience was belief in God's glory. So the result of their complete obedience was belief and God's glory. Um, we talked about it last week, this pattern in John's gospel, how he, um, he kind of gives us a sign or Jesus makes a statement. And then at the end of the story, the, the people who are there have a choice to make. Will they follow him or will they not? And so we see here in this miracle, the first instance, and it's where the disciples, it says the disciples believed him. Um, and it was really only because of these servants' complete obedience. And the result was God's glory. If you look um, back in verse 11, it says this, the first of his signs Jesus did at Cana in Galilee and manifested his glories and the disciples believed him. And so, um, I love this quote um, by Matthew Henry, who's one of my favorite um, commentators to read. Um, it said, those that expect Christ's favors must observe his orders with ready obedience. The way of duty is the way to mercy and Christ's methods must not be objected against. Um, and one of the ways that we can kind of misinterpret this passage is kind of go, okay, complete obedience will get me wine. Like it will get me the good stuff. If I do what God says, I will get good things. Um, and that's not what the result was. The result was God's glory and others coming to believe him. And so our obedience has purpose and our obedience draws others to Christ and our obedience manifests his glory in our own life. Um, 
And we will yield fruit, not for our own selves, but for his glory. Um, and so after this, in verse 12, it says, after that, he went down to Capernaum with his mother and his brothers, his disciples, and they stayed there for a few days. So if you've got your map, um, you can kind of see over um, toward the east, you can see Capernaum, which is a city that Jesus spent a good amount of time in. It's right on the north shore, northwest shore of the Sea of Galilee. Okay, so now we're going to move into Jesus cleansing the temple. Um, and so as I, um, so verse 13 starts, the Passover of the Jews was at hand and Jesus went up to Jerusalem. Um, so it's probable that this is the same instance of Jesus clearing the temple that we see in Matthew, Mark, and Luke, or Matthew, I think it's on all three of them. I could be wrong. Whichever other ones it's in, the week before his crucifixion. Um, if you'll remember, John is ordering his gospel in a way that leads us to this idea that Jesus is the Messiah. And so um, the events of John do not necessarily happen in chronological order. Um, because something like this is a big deal. And so for Jesus to do this and then come back two years later and do it again, and it was the clearing of the temple that really led to his, um, led to his arrest. It was like the final straw. So um, it's most likely it's the same instance. Um, there, jury's still out, you know, I mean, there's some differing opinions, but um, to me, that kind of makes the most sense. Um, so, um, and I love the contrast here. So we just saw this private miracle that Jesus did, um, which I think I read in one of my commentaries, it talked about how the humility of him to start with something in a private arena because he, um, it just proved that he wasn't out for people's own glory. It's like to get glory from the people. It's not like he came out and he was like, I'm here, the Messiah. Let's get some people raised from the dead. You know, he um, did his first entrance into, he did it basically for his disciples and those servants because they were the only ones who knew. And so he did this private miracle that manifested his glory that led the disciples to believe him. And then John contrasts that with this miracle, with this um, claim and this cleansing of the temple that happened during Passover. Um, so Passover is usually in March or April. It's usually, it's around, it's the same uh, around that we celebrate Easter. Um, it is a seven day feast to remember God bringing the Israelites out of Egypt. Um, if you remember, um, you know, Moses goes to Pharaoh, let my people go. Huh. Yeah, 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 yeah. Um, and come on, y'all. Y'all know you're singing the song. Okay. Okay. So they leave. Um, we have the 10 plagues. We have um, the 10th plague is um, that the firstborn of every household will um, die. That included animals and Egyptians, but God gave his people um, a way to escape for the angel to pass over their house. And so each um, family took a, a, a young lamb that was unblemished and um, slaughtered it and uh, put the blood over their doorpost. And when the blood covered their household and the angel passed over them and they were spared um, 
the loss of their firstborn. And so Moses in or sorry, Pharaoh in despair says, that's it, go. And so they leave. Um, and a huge part of that, um, and the reason I'm telling you this, you'll find, you'll see in just a second, but the reason um, they, it is very, they eat unleavened bread, which is bread without yeast. Um, that's why usually when we do a Lord's Supper, it's like a the cracker thing. Um, it was because when Pharaoh said go, they had to leave and grab everything and they didn't have time for their bread to leaven, to rise. And so um, the unleavened bread was a huge part of this festival um, and this remembrance. And Jesus or God commanded them um, to remember this day and to celebrate it. And in fact, um, they celebrated it. They crossed into the promised land 40 years later on um, during Passover and they celebrated the Passover um, in the promised land. And then every year after that. Um, and I think it's really interesting. So we see God commanding them in Deuteronomy 16, one through eight, that they not celebrate Passover in their own homes, but that they all come to, at that time, it says in the place that I will show you, but it's Jerusalem. And so even Jesus, we see in Luke two, would travel with his family every year at Passover to come to Jerusalem for the Passover festival for Passover feast. Um, so that's a little bit about Passover. So um, and you'll find out why some of that's important in just a minute. So uh, verse 14, in the temple, he found those who were selling oxen and sheep and pigeons and the money changers sitting there and making a whip of cords. He drove them all out of the temple with the sheep and the oxen. And he poured out the coins of the money changers and overturned their tables. And he told those who sold the pigeons, take these things away. Do not make my father's house uh, a house of trade. Okay, so. Um, what's important to know is that um, under the law, they were under a sacrificial system. So to cover the sins or to receive forgiveness of their sins, um, there were certain sacrifices required. Um, there was the one big one, one time a year that happened during Yom Kippur. Um, but then there were other sacrifices that were made throughout um, the Jewish calendar. And at Passover, there was a lamb that was um, part of that Um but then there were these sin offerings and burnt offerings and guilt offerings and fellowship offerings and burnt offerings, um, uh, sorry, grain offerings. And so um, each one required a different sacrifice and there were different concessions made based on your economic standing. And so um, if you were poor, you would offer birds as um, pigeons or doves as, so some of your versions may say pigeons, some may say doves. Um, if you um, had more money or if you were in leadership, then maybe you gave a bull or a goat or a sheep. Um, and so Jesus walks into the temple. Now, if you have on page 19 in your book on the map, um, he walks into what is the court of Gentiles. So within the temple, there are certain sections where certain people are able to go. Um, and the court of Gentiles is the outermost. So if you're looking at your map, um, court of Gentiles is between, you'll see like right above the royal porch, you'll see like two little spaces in the line. Those are gates. And then this open area right in here would have been the court of Gentiles. And then inside the temple proper through the gate beautiful was the court of women. And then the men were permitted to go even further. And then the priests even further than that. And so 
the court of Gentiles would have been where everyone was, was allowed to be. Um, and it would have been the most public of places. Um, and so we have all these um, people there selling um, the sacrifice, selling, you know, you need a sacrifice, you need a lamb, you need a dove, you know, you can get it here. Um, but then on top of that, they had these money changers. Um, and God takes his name very seriously. And we see that even in the Ten Commandments, we see that very early. Um, but God takes his glory he takes his house, he takes his temple, he takes his name very seriously. And what had happened, um, as I was reading through some commentaries, I thought this was such an eye-opening note that I just never knew or put two and two together. But in order for these people to be selling in the court of Gentiles, they had to have permission from the priests and from the religious leaders. And so it's very possible that there was a little rent system or um, a benefit to the priests that these, they wouldn't just let them come sell in there for their own gain. And so it was not only a corruption of the sacrificial system, not only was it a corruption of you know, the money changers were taking foreign money because each region had its own money system and exchanging it um, at a, you know, exchange rates. There's like always a fee on top of it. Um, so not only are they cheating in that way, but then we're also, there's corruption within the religious leaders for allowing this to happen within the temple. And so as Jesus walks in, um, he sees, um, and particularly at Passover, everyone has come to Jerusalem. So it is the busiest that the city is, um, and it's really easy for us to look at this and get really legalistic about it um, and to go, okay, well, we shouldn't have bookstores in any of our churches or um, we should never sell certain things. But here's what I want you to know. This is a heart issue. This was a, an issue of the heart of the religious leaders of the, um, I mean, in a lot of ways, they're taking shortcuts in, in the sacrifices because they're just paying money for some, an animal and, and, and offering it instead of, um, you know, getting one and bringing it with them on their journey and all of that. So um, Jesus walks in and um, he sees all of this. And so I just love John's attention to the detail in this, that he mentions that they were sitting, the money changers were sitting, that he mentions that he drove out the animals that could walk, but yet he said, take these doves out of here. Um, it's just, it's extremely detailed how he takes a, a whip of cord and, um, cords and makes a whip out of them. Um, and we see, um, Matthew Poole had a really great quote. He's another great, um, commentator. Um, he said, um, we find Christ engaged driving from the temple, the traders, whom the covetous priests and rulers encourage to make a marketplace of its courts, whose minds are filled with cares about worldly business when attending religious exercises or who perform divine offices for the love of gain. And so our, our hearts really are, are, are we seeking to gain money? Are we seeking to take advantage of people in their spirituality? Um, are we um, more concerned with business than we are with people's hearts? Um, 
So here's the, here's the reason why I mentioned the leaven. Because as they're preparing for Passover, the head of the household would go through the house and remove all the leaven from their home. And it was the symbol of removing um, the impurities. So leaven in scripture has a lot of symbolism around um, that. So it's the removing of this leaven from the house. And so that's this picture that we get of Jesus here, that he is coming in at Passover and he is removing the impurities from his father's house. Um, and then verse 17, it says, his disciples remembered that it was written, zeal for your house will consume me. Um, this is a quote from Psalm 69, verse 9. Um, it is called the Psalm of the Righteous Sufferer. And um, there's some imagery in there that um, many early Christians um, believed that it might have been a messianic prophecy um, or that it may have been speaking of Christ. And in fact, John has three quotes in his gospel that come from Psalm 69. Um, and it's a great place where we can see how um, Old Testament scripture has a, um, it's going to sound weird when I say it, but it has a meaning for that moment and it has a meaning for future moment. And so it has this meaning for David who wrote it, but it also is pointing forward to Christ. Um, so verse 18, so the Jews said to him, what sign do you show us for doing these things? Jesus answered him, destroy this temple and in three days I will raise it up. The Jews then said, it has taken 46 years to build this temple and you will raise it in three days. But he was speaking about the temple of his body. When therefore he was raised from the dead, his disciples remembered that he had said this and they believed the scripture in the word that Jesus had spoken. And so we see that word there, sign. They ask him, hey, why are you doing this? What sign? How can you give us, what authority are you doing this on? And Jesus, instead of giving them a miraculous sign, gives them a bold statement. He says, tear this um, temple down and I will rebuild it in three days. Um, and remember that John is, I, I love this. And this is one of the ways that John's gospel is so unique. He doesn't leave anything to um, your own interpretation. He's like, he was speaking about his body. <laughs> and so he interprets it here for us. Um, and um it says that when he had died and rose again, um, they remembered. And um, it was at his, um, it was at his rising, it, when he was resurrected, the need for all these sacrifices was gone. Um, there was no longer a temple needed. And Jesus fulfilled the ultimate sacrifice. And um, remember that John is writing this after the temple has been destroyed. So the temple was destroyed in 70 AD. And so he's writing this 40 to 45, 50 years later after Jesus um, has, has done this. Um, and there were many who did not believe Jesus as Messiah and they were still hoping for a rebuilt temple. And so it was a reminder to say, listen, don't you remember? Um, he, the temple is no longer needed. We don't, we can tear this temple down because Jesus Christ has resurrected um, and uh, his, he has rebuilt that temple because now the temple is, is founded in him. And um, then we see for the second time in this chapter that his disciples remember something that was said. So said they remembered the Psalm where he said, zeal for my house will consume me. And then again, they remembered his words after he had risen from the dead um, and they believed. Um, hindsight, y'all, is 2020. 
Um, we don't always have understanding in those moments. Um, and that's why I'm such a huge fan of remembering and recording and um, writing things down, journaling, writing your, your fears, writing out your prayers. Um, just this week, I needed a new sermon note journal. And I had one that I had only written on like three pages. And um, the last thing I wrote in it was a prayer that I wrote on like March 16, 17, 18, like somewhere in that the very first week of quarantine. And I was able to look back and go, okay, that's where I was six months ago. And look at all the things I've seen God do. Um, so writing those things down because so that we can remember. Um, and again, we see the pattern where Jesus makes this claim and the disciples believe. Um, and okay, so then we end with these last three little verses and I'm going to do this quickly. Um, because I know I'm over. Now, when Jesus was in Jerusalem at the Passover feast, many believed in his name when they saw the signs he was doing. But Jesus, on his part, did not entrust himself to them because he knew all people and he needed no one to bear witness about man, for he himself knew what was in man. Um, so we see the, the, the signs and the believing again here in this little section. Um, and um, the Greek word believed, the root word is faith. And so this is really about faith. It means to trust, to have faith in, to have confidence in, um, to be persuaded. And so these people are believing in him because of the signs, because of the authority that he is displaying. But there's this weird thing about Jesus not um, entrusting himself to them. That word entrust is the same Greek word used for believed. And so he's saying he did not believe in them. And I know this is weird, but the thing I want you to really take away from this is that he is omniscient and he knows the heart of man. And so we see John for the second time in this book pointing to the omniscience of Jesus, that he knows all things. Um, remember, we saw it with Nathaniel under the fig tree in chapter one. Um, and so um, I want to end with this quote um, from Matthew Henry that kind of explains a little bit more. Our Lord knew all men, their nature, dispositions, affections, designs, so as we do not know any man, not even ourselves. He knows his crafty enemies and all their secret projects, his false friends and their true characters. He knows who truly are his. He knows their uprightness and knows their weaknesses. We know what is done by men, but Christ knows what is in them. And he tries the heart. Beware of dead faith or formal professional profession. Carnal, empty professors are not to be trusted. And however men impose on others or themselves, they cannot impose on the heart searching God. First Corinthians 6, 9 and 10 says, Or do you not know that your body is a temple of the Holy Spirit within you, whom you have from God? You are not your own. You were bought with a price, so glorify God with your body. I love in scripture how we see God's dwelling places come from the garden to um, the tent, to the building, and now through the power of the resurrection of Jesus Christ our Messiah is in us. 
This story is a reminder to me to constantly take inventory of what I'm allowing in the temple of my heart. Like those religious leaders, am I allowing sin to take residence and do business in my soul? Or am I constantly doing the hard work, clearing out the idols that sneak their way back in? In churchy language, we call this sanctification, and I know it's a big word, but it's one that we need to know. It's worth learning. It's God's will for us that we remove the things of our flesh and the world, and that we look and act and think more on His ways. And just like that wine, He is making something new in us. It requires an emptying of ourselves so that we can be filled with Him. And through our obedience in this process, He gets the glory and others come to believe. Next week, we are studying the world's most famous Bible verse in context, and I can't wait. I hope that you do not settle for the familiar, but that as you are building new layers of understanding, as we study scripture in this way, that you will see at a deeper level through Jesus's honest conversation with a seeking religious leader. Let me close us in prayer. Father, we just thank you for your word. We thank you that it goes forth from your mouth and it accomplishes a purpose in us. Lord, that it causes our lives to be more fruitful, that it changes our hearts, that it draws us towards you. Lord, I pray that as we um, reflect on chapter two and as we move into chapter three, Lord, that you would continue to do the work of clearing out in us what needs to be removed so that we can be filled with more of you. Lord, that um, in the private places, Lord, you would do the work in us so that as we go out into the world, Lord, that your light is shining through us and that it's your glory that gets revealed, not our own, and that many believe because of the actions and the hearts and the attitudes of us who are following you. Lord, we love you. Um, we praise you. And it's in your name I pray. Amen.